Mr. Vice-Chancellor, Excellencies and distinguished guests, faculty members, students, ladies and gentlemen, I'm really delighted to be here today and for this chance to meet and speak to you, students, staff, and friends of Exeter College. But let me begin by thanking you, Andrew Hamilton, the Vice-Chancellor of the University, and Francis Cainkrotz, Rector of Exeter College, for the warm welcome you have received. And allow me also to recognize my president, John Kufour, who is one of you and he's back home. So John, it's good to see you here. It is of course a pleasure to be back here at Oxford, a university which has produced such important scholarship on the United Nations and on Africa. And I know that many of the scholars are in this room with us this afternoon. And I, you've just also launched a book on African development, and I understand quite a few of the authors are also here with us. I would also want to say how honored I am to have been asked to launch the 700th anniversary celebrations of Exeter College. I noticed, and as the Vice Chancellor said, that this anniversary does not officially take place until 2014. So you have obviously decided to have an early start. <laughs> and rightly so, you know. Such a long and distinguished history deserves long celebration. Exeter is not only one of the oldest colleges in the university, but has a unique spirit and a proud outward-looking tradition. You attract the brightest and the best to teach and study, which is why I look forward to the question and answer period with both excitement and some trepidation. <laughs> and of course, as I've said earlier, among your alumni is my fellow countryman, John Kufour, who I'm delighted to see here and to say that I know the pride he takes in his time here at Exeter. And the college will equally take pride in his achievement as president of Ghana for, for embedding democracy and advancing economic and social uh, development. These achievements are very essential on our continent. John began his studies here in 1961, not long before I had begun my own studies in uh, college in the United States. What I remember most of that era was that African hopes and self on se hope for self-determination were brimming over. We were, we were all very excited, and it was a time of great expectations and ex ex excitement for young people like ourselves. I mean, John and me, we were once young. You can't believe it, <laughs> but we were once young. <laughs> there was a widespread belief that freedom from our colonial rulers would bring progress and prosperity. We expected the new African nations to forge their future together, that we, could, we would and could control our natural resources and join the community of nations as equal partners. Sadly, as history has documented, many of our hopes were soon to be dashed. 
newly independent African states struggled to contain the impact of arbitrary borders and split ethnic groups and communities and fuel tensions. In many countries, the unifying force of independent movements gave way to one-party states as African governments sought to centralize power both economically and politically. The continent became a land of big men and the battleground for proxy wars of the Cold War. Development stagnated, deadly conflicts raged, and the rule of law and human rights were neglected. Half a century ago, Africa stood at crossroads. For many reasons, some within Africa and some with roots outside, Africa took the wrong path. But today, as a new wave of optimism has taken hold, Africa is once again being seen as a continent of opportunity, the last emerging investment frontier. We need to see this optimism in the number and diversity of businesses and countries flocking to invest in the continent. It is, <clears throat> it is an optimism based on strong economic growth, which even the financial crisis, the global financial crisis, had not been able to dim except to reverse briefly. And increasingly, this growth is being used to diversify economies and invest in the bedrock of successful societies in education, health, and vital infrastructure. This is not the picture of Africa that is normally painted in the global media. Too often we hear the stereotype of a broken continent stricken by disease and poverty. A stereotype too in which problems in one country infect the reputation and the image of a whole continent. Curiously, the reverse is not true. Very few people could name the country with the world's most sustained and strongest economic growth over the last 40 years. The answer is Botswana, a stable, successful democracy ever since independence in 1964. It underlines why we have to remember that Africa consists of 53 diverse nations, soon to be 54, with the result of the Southern Sudanese referendum. But even taking into account that countries are progressing at different speeds, Africa's fortunes have been turning around in the last decade. Real GDP grew by 5% annually between 2000 and 2006, twice the level of the previous two decades. According to African Development Bank, six African countries are forecast to enjoy growth this year above 7%, 15 countries above 5%, and 27 countries above 3%. Direct foreign investment has soared from 9 billion to 52 billion from 2000 to 2011. 
This momentum is expected to continue and can be accelerated if we tackle remaining barriers to progress by investing in energy, infrastructure, and strengthening regional integration. Improved regional integration is essential to increase trade within Africa, which today stands at 10% compared with 67% in the European Union. And we should also remove the barriers and the tariffs amongst ourselves. But even so, the IMF already believes that the continent will have as many as seven of the ten fastest growing economies in the world during the next decade. I believe even higher growth rates are necessary to lift millions of Africans out of poverty and hunger and position Africa as an essential part of the global economic system. Africa's improved economic performance and prospects have, of course, become the subject of growing amount of analysis by banks, policymakers, and international organizations. And um, <clears throat> there is a debate about the role and impact of painful economic reforms which were encouraged and in some cases imposed on African countries by the Brenton Woods institutions. It is now widely acknowledged that these structural adjustment programs had terrible consequences socially and institutionally, but the physical discipline they put in place helped to cushion African economies against the external shocks, encouraged the growth of reserves and well-regulated banking sectors. It is clear, too, that another major reason for increased investment and growth has been Africa's natural resources and attractiveness to emerging economies, particularly China. With at least 10% of the world's oil and gas reserves, 40% of its gold, and 80% of its chromium and platinum, Africa is well-placed to continue to benefit from the wealth beneath its, uh, beneath its soil and the boom in commodity uh, prices, which I hope and expect to continue. China's increasing interest in Africa has also had another spillover effect. Asian demand for African commodities has improved the terms of trade, and other continents are beginning to take a look at Africa. This, in turn, has also encouraged uh, investors not only from the South, Brazil, India, and others, but also from the West to take a look at Africa with different eyes. But important as China's influence has been, the recent research has shown that Africa's economic success is not simply tied to natural resources or to one country. Profitable economic partnerships are also being developed with Brazil, Turkey, India, Malaysia, and other countries in the Middle East. Well, and world-class African companies, and there, there are a few, world-class African companies are also making inroads into these markets. These South-South relationships are proven important opportunities for peer learning on appropriate development strategies to eradicate poverty and address inequality. 
last year's report by McKinsey, McKinsey Consultants, aptly named Lions on the Move, found that just a third of Africa's growth up to 2008 was due to natural resources. Other sectors such as telecoms, financial services, agribusiness, construction and infrastructure are also thriving, creating jobs and incomes. <clears throat> the report found that Africa's strong growth owes as much of it, if not more, to increased stability, including the end of conflicts. Growing investment in human and physical infrastructure, progress in achieving the Millennium Development Goals, and reducing the risk and cost of doing business. Even more encouraging are the changes in Africa's demographics, which can help to harness Africa's potential over the coming decades, if sustained by good public policies. These include fast-growing and young labor force, rapid urbanization, and a burgeoning middle class. The diaspora is also playing a positive role by transferring skills, bringing much-needed innovation and entrepreneurship to the continent, and increasing the financial flows from remittances. And I think the return of the trained Africans is a real, real, has a real potential for us and this played a very important role in the development of India, Brazil, and Mexico, and I hope the reverse brain drain back to Africa will continue. Africa is also benefiting from the spread of uh, mobile phones and ICT. It is helping the countries to leapfrog other unsustainable forms of development and consumption and delivering social services in health, education, and weather information. Not long ago, I visited a farm project in, in Kenya, and we went to a market. Near the market was a small room, and somebody said, you want to see what's going on in this room? We went to the room. There was a blackboard on the wall. On the horizontal side, you had names of cities, Nairobi, Kisumu, Mombasa, and on the vertical side, the produce, beans, corn, whatever. And it, it quoted the prices the goose were going for in each of the cities. And the farmers were making their deals through the cell phone, cutting out the middlemen. <laughs> and so I turned to an American friend with me and said, well, they've established their own Chicago Board of Trade. <laughs> and they are you know, going on. So interesting things are, are happening. And perhaps most importantly, the continent has benefited from the new generation of African policymakers who are managing economies better, paying attention to social development, and building the institutional capacities needed to increase regional trade and economic cooperation. All these are positive factors for the future. Even one of Africa's brightest challenges, no, even one of, not brightest actually, it's one of our biggest challenges, even one of our biggest challenges, how to feed this, the citizens and tackle widespread hunger can be seen to offer hope if the right policies and investments are put in place. I mean, we've been very good 
at, pro- at producing and exporting what we don't eat, like cocoa for chocolates, and importing what we need for bil- millions and bil- if not billions of dollars. But we need to reverse this, and our farmers can do it. Currently, Africa is the only continent who does not grow enough food to feed its own people. Its farmers have been locked out of the scientific and technological advances which have transformed crop yields across the world. In fact, there are African farmers today who are using seeds which are about 20 years old, unheard of in other parts of the, of the world. And of course, efforts are being made to assist them now. The result is that hundreds of millions of people go hungry every day. And it is a scandal which climate change is already making more severe. But Africa also contains 60% of the world's uncultivated arable land. If we can promote a uniquely green African revolution, drawing on the experiences of Asia and Latin America, not only can we meet our food shortages within the continent, but we can provide experts, can provide food for exports and become part of the world food security system. And this will be extremely helpful for the African continent and the population. It will create jobs. And besides, I'm afraid the higher food prices are here to stay. And so we should really plan uh, for that. Ladies and gentlemen, you, you would be forgiven for thinking that I have become a hopelessly optimistic since leaving the United Nations. <laughs> uh, after all, we have seen many false dawns in Africa. Why should this be any different? And I would not in any way wish to underestimate the enormous challenges the continent still faces. We have recently seen a reminder of the stubborn political obstacles that can get in the way of progress in the, in the crisis of Cote d'Ivoire. The refusal of incumbent President Laurent Gbagbo to concede defeat in an election that almost every independent monitor has certified to be fair risk returning the country to civil war. Africa and indeed the world cannot afford such development. Indeed, if there is one area which above all will determine the direction of Africa's future, it is the quality of governance and leadership. Leadership not just within individual countries in Africa, but regionally across the continent as a whole. In contrast, lack of good governance and poor leadership is the single biggest obstacle to development. It promotes corruption and increases the likelihood of inequality, instability, and conflict. I believe that Africa's economic growth could double and make a profound impact on poverty eradication if it can get its politics right. If we can see best practice from within the continent spread across all of it. Could you imagine if the whole continent were to become a Botswana? 
in terms of governance. Ladies and gentlemen, a continent at peace with itself requires more than absence of war. It requires that we embrace respect for human rights and the rule of law and transparent, effective, and accountable governance. Important steps towards a more democratic and rules-based political culture have been made since the 1990s. We have seen more multi-party elections in Africa, greater adherence to democratic principles, and the growth of civil society. And some of these civil society groups are very effective and very robust, but we need more of them. And the AU's Charter on Democracy and African Peer Review Mechanism, and I think Ghana was the first to be reviewed under your presidency, Mr. President. The peer review mechanism, even though works, is, are works in progress, are landmark instruments of good governance, currently absent from many other developing regions in the world. However, in many African countries, there remains a profound mismatch between the aspirations of his people and the caliber and integrity of those leading them. Let me briefly mention two areas where I believe political leadership and good governance will be decisive factors in charting Africa's future. First, protecting the integrity of elections. And second, addressing the root causes of conflict through institutional reform. As you may know, no less than 18 African countries are holding elections this year. Maybe we have one or two more since recent events. <laughs> each, each one has the potential to exacerbate existing tensions within society or of retrenching more democratic entrenching more democratic institutions and improved governance in these countries. I have already mentioned the troubled elections in Cote d'Ivoire. If Babu is allowed to prevail, elections as instruments of peaceful change in Africa will suffer a serious setback. Leaders must understand that they enter elections to win or to lose. That peaceful, that peaceful transition of power is the cornerstone of sus sustainable democracy and durable peace. I know when the, the last term of President Kufour, the gap was about 23,000 between the, the government party and the opposition. But the change had to take place, and that's the way it should be. And we need to accept the results of these elections. The African Union and the international community, I believe, must do more to protect the integrity of the electoral process. Otherwise, election-related violence and conflict will erode the progress we have seen on the continent. Elections must be backed by institutions and laws that uphold the rights of all citizens and create a pluralist society rather than defend ethnicity and special interest. But let me deal with the claim made by some commentators recently that it is the power-sharing agreement in Kenya 
which, which I helped broker, which has given encouragement to those defeated in elections to cling on to power, hoping in the least to get power sharing arrangements. Unlike elections in Cote d'Ivoire and Zimbabwe, there was no clear winner in the 2007 elections in Kenya. The scale of violence that ensued in Kenya was catastrophic. Within relatively a uh, few short weeks, 1,200 people had been killed, 650,000 had been displaced. And when you have a situation where hundreds are killed, injured and raped, and thousands fled from their, their home, you need a solution that can first save lives, calm the situation, and you move on from there. The political settlement ended the terrible violence which flared up as a result of the disputed election itself. The resultant national accord, which I helped negotiate, not only led to the first coalition government in Africa, but it also committed the Kenyans the political party, the leaders, and the population to profound agenda of institutional reforms, to tackle impunity, and to promote national reconciliation and cohesion. One of the tangible results has been a new constitution and a bill of rights, which should be a source of pride to all Kenyans, and inspire forward-looking constitutional development across the region. We now need to see real courage and commitment to ensure that the rest of the reform agenda is implemented. It has not been an easy journey, but I hope, as most Kenyans do, that full implementation of the new constitution will help tackle the root causes of conflict and prevent such crises from erupting again. It will also demonstrate that concerted action to address national identity and citizenship issues, to reform land tenure, to bring government closer to the people through devolution, and making sure that women have a strong voice in their societies are key to building strong and cohesive societies. My friends, what Africa needs to do now is to is to keep building on the progress that has been achieved so far. This requires a comprehensive strategy for the future, one that gives equal weight and attention to security, development, the rule of law, and respect for human rights. They cannot be separated. They all reinforce each other, and they depend on each other. And I think when we look at countries and we assess the health of the nation, we need to look at these three pillars, the state of security and the sense of uh, safety that citizens feel, which in turn will create an environment that could lead to development, but both have to be embedded in the rule of law and respect for human rights. The international community must support African efforts to reform and provide the resources to help build government capacity and capability. But good governance in Africa must be complemented by fair rules and good governance at the global level. Africa can no longer be a bystander 
as decisions are made about its future, whether it is to do with the global trade regime, regulating international finance, or tackling climate change. And African countries should have fair representation on the decision-making bodies of the intergovernmental organizations, such as the Security Council, and in a way the G20. Finally, let me say a few words about the events in North Africa, which I believe has broader lessons for authoritarian regimes everywhere. These popular uprisings show that the democratic aspirations of people cannot be contained and that human rights are not a luxury, let alone a plot from our side. Human rights has a meaning to every community uh, in the world. Wherever people live, they want their voices to be heard, their rights respected, and to have a say in how they are governed and by whom they are governed. The yearn for decent jobs, opportunity, and a secure future for their children. They believe that the rule of law must apply to everyone, no matter how powerful. The demand for more inclusive, more accountable, more responsive government is, I believe, unstoppable. The leaders, the people have shown their inclinations and the leaders have to adapt. It's a voice coming from right across the population, but most strongly from the younger generation. It is this generation, their dynamism, their determination and ambition, which is, I believe, the major reason for confidence in Africa. It is also the generation that is around us today, and I'm happy that so many of you came this afternoon. It may be, of course, that the issues I have raised today can seem a long way from your lives here at Oxford. But remember that you are the first generation who can call yourselves citizens of the world, the first truly global citizens, and you must remember that wherever you come from, whatever you are studying, and whatever you intend to do, you can no longer think in purely local terms. You need to think beyond your own borders. It is, <clears throat> it is how you respond to the interlinked challenges in front of us that will decide the future direction of your world. It is your world now. It is a big responsibility, I know. You must have the courage to change it for the better. I, for one, have the confidence that you are up to the task. Thank you very much.